0: Welcome to another episode of AfroLit. I am your host, Equipm, and today I am joined by my twin. (laughs) Well, we share the same name, but the plethora of accolades, this woman of the, the world, woman of writings, woman of storytelling has, is by far further than I've gone yet and i'm excited to have her on the show nana welcome hi
1: thank you so much for having me nana and um yet is the operative word because we're you're just aging me
0: (laughs) (laughs) not at all not at all you know here age age is Age doesn't, age is actually the font size on your phone. It's not even the, <laughs> that's, that's I read the that best. quote and that's I was just best. like, that is actually the truth. Because these young that. kids, <laughs> they look at the, they can see the tiny lines <laughs> on the iPhone. And meanwhile, mine is huge. And it's like. <laughs> that's, that's
1: brilliant. That's right? Perfect. It's just
0: the eight, it's just your font size. That's it. That's it. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Is this your first podcast interview? <laughs> but don't ask me to,
1: to to remember what which what it was.
0: <laughs> at least well at but, least this is the first time that we're gonna be just discussing many different things outside yes. of you and your opinion. And so here on AfroLit, as the fam knows, we're here to just Uplift and showcase the heritage of what it means to be African and to be lit. And that's exactly what you stand for. (laughs) Thank you. So my opening question, and I feel like I've been going down a theme this well season of just understanding what it means to bring your heritage to your work. And I feel like for you especially your heritage is like the defining marker. And as I was, you know, you can do family, you can do the research on her Wikipedia page and all that stuff. But I want to get deep into just understanding how you entered into this world of writing. So why writing? Why that medium?
1: I have always written. I mean, when I was a kid, I was just the weirdo who would, you know, at family... (laughs) you know, functions, I'd be like in the coat room, like writing, you know, I was just always writing. And um, I think for me, I just never thought that it could be like a profession.
0: Interesting. You know, because
1: my parents were just like, doctor, Mm. yes, Mm -hmm. you will be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, whatever. Mm. So that was probably the biggest leap for me. But I was
0: always writing from very young. Amazing. And so when did you kind of make that transition? And to understanding like, oh, I can actually do this for life and not just as a, a hobby. Yeah, um, I think it was it wasn't like a
1: moment, you know, as most things are. Yeah. Like It's just sort of like a cumulative series of events. Mm-hmm. I remember being in a sophomore in college and my sister got me for my birthday this journal that's that had on, you know, it was titled Book Woman. And she said to me, she was like, you know, you can do this, right? And so I was like, huh. So that was like the beginning. She believed in me so much and she encouraged me. And then, um, you know, working. (laughs) When you work and you're you're just like, I hate this job. I hate my life. This is not what I'm meant to be doing. And I remember my first job, um, or my second job out of college, I just quit abruptly. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Because I had been sort of on the side, you know, doing some small articles for different like online, like back then, like online um, magazines were exploding and they mm. needed people, untested people they were taking. Mm. So I was like, yeah, so yeah. I had a couple clips sit behind me and I was like, Amazing. I'm ready to write. And so <laughs> I just quit my job. I think I had like three or four like <laughs> articles out there and I quit Amazing. and um, I did it for a couple months and it was not working in terms of money. And so I had to go back and work. But by then, as I was sort of just building, 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 and I got a job at um, this really cool magazine called Trace. Um, Oh, yes. yes. It's since become Trace TV. Mm -hmm. Um, But Trace magazine was awesome. I like, so because I took advantage of the fact that I live, you know, in New York City. So Mm -hmm. I would go with like, you know, my little query letters to like all the different magazines, all the different, you know, I went to Condé Nast, Mm -hmm. I went to Hearst and then i went to trace proactive you see yes when oh my goodness this, i would just, just like get dressed and like go on the train and march like into the offices and just be like here's my query letter <laughs> <laughs> and i ha- when i at trace trace had this um had this office this loft office yeah. in soho and um, the editor in chief happened to be there. So it was like this one, I mentioned wow. a loft because it was like a big open space. He saw me and he was just like, what are you doing here? And I was just yeah. like, well, I'm coming to deliver my query letter. <laughs> and so, you know, I got to talking and they gave me a chance. And I ended up, um, they ended up hiring me to be um, an assistant editor. And I got so much experience interviewing Amazing. people, writing for the magazine. Yeah. Um, so
0: it was great. That is so, look at that. I feel like that speaks to so many, like too many dynamics that we can't get into all at once. But A, that fire, that ambition, that proactiveness – And B, the fact that you are a New Yorker, you know? But you can still go to Accra and blend in with a crowd. And so tell me how that dual identity kind of reflects into your storytelling, you know? Before we jumped on the mics, we were having such a great conversation about identity and what it means to A, be perceived a certain way, but internally you have multitudes of people and you can kind of traverse the world addressing and adjusting you know which is a skill but also just a gift from god you know and so yeah tell me more about how you bring that to life yeah
1: so um it's funny because um i have a short story in the anthology new daughters of africa and it um it's the first time that i'm actually um explicitly exploring this Mm -hmm. this feeling of um being in a different context when you're in the States or in New York or in the Western world as a black woman, right? Because right. when you're in, in New York, my Africanness is almost like subservient to my blackness, you know? Yes. And, and and all of the things that comes with like dealing with race and dealing with, you know, just uh, all of gender, class, all of those things that are wrapped up in like identity in, in the States and in, yeah. in a place like New York. But then, when I go to ghana it's it's like I'm called Obruni, which means white person, mm. so then dealing with the um the sort of foreignness yes. that comes with like that that name and that title that's conferred upon me, but also the um the privilege that i I have. Uh. Um, being a foreigner in their eyes, coming, you know, having a U.S. passport, having access to dollars, Mm -hmm. and all of those, all of the things that that means in that society, um, and just navigating that, and and realizing that, like, I have to um, be cognizant of it, and how am I making, how am I making things better? Because I know how to rail against it here in the States, but how do I, how do I adjust my privilege, and, you know, seek access for people who have less than
0: I do Mm -hmm. um, when I'm there. Right. No, I think and, you know, I'm excited to really delve into your work. I know I haven't yet, but I will be sure to and I think that One thing that as I was, of course, doing my research, one thing that I did um, think a lot about was the quote, you know, until the lion learns how to write, the story will always glorify the hunter. And I think that especially, you know, being that you are not only an African writer, you are, you know, female writer and all of these titles that society loves now we're highlighting. You know, I want to know from your perspective, do you think that within African storytelling, we're still... We're doing a good job of stepping away from the stare, "quote unquote" stereotypical story, or do you think there's still a lot work, more work that needs to be done?
1: Well, I think there's always, even when you've reached the zenith, there's mm-hmm. always more to climb. Still, right? Yeah, you know, because on top of the zenith is the sky, so you know, so it's <laughs> right, kind of and like, there's the clouds, <laughs> exactly. So it's limitless. But I, I do think that um, I'm really happy about the diversity of stories that are coming out. There's just, because I guess we're in a boon right now and I hope it lasts, Um, but we're seeing so many different kinds of stories. You know, you have um, people writing fantasy, people writing fairy tales, people writing folk tales, people writing, you know, literary fiction. So there's, there's, exactly. So there's so much, and and because of that, um, there is um, diversity what is also kind of um interesting is um the african um the actual the po- so you have what i think it- the tension is mm-hmm. is that people in the Western world have more proximity and access to getting published in terms mm. of you know London, New York, um, you know Los you Angeles. have that exactly yeah, yeah. so you're able to the publishers are there, the international publishers are there, and then on the continent, um, a lot of that is siloed, so there is South Africa and then Nigeria and I know in Ghana and Kenya there are places but they're not as big. Mm. And then we also have the language barriers. Um, I remember when I was selected for Africa 39, yes. um, a bunch of us were went to Nigeria for um, a festival and to launch the book. And there was um, a writer from Equatorial Guinea there and a writer from um, the Congo, Congo Brazzaville. Mm. And we were, understanding then like wow like we don't we're not familiar the anglophones aren't familiar with the francophone
0: you know works
1: and the Franco, we're not we're definitely not familiar with like the hispanophone or the lusophone works Mm -hmm. and so that was like you know a wake-up call for me like just the importance of because and because we're not familiar with it we don't know what the specific experiences are and so that's what we need to push for we need to push for much more um Diversity. Um, excuse me, not diversity. Much more translation of the works, mm. and much more mobility, um, breaking mm-hmm. down the barriers so that we're able to get access to these works, and then also including the African diaspora that is abroad. Like, I, I think African Americans' their work should be translated into all these, you know, different languages, right. and then brought back because they're part of us too, Af- you know, Afro-Europeans, right. Afro-Asians, like, because mm-hmm. the- our story basically is is
0: transcontinental, it is. you know, so why aren't we, you know, connecting those dots? So it was, the first part is if there, you know, we have 54 nations, and again, so many different languages. Within the translations, though, don't you think that some parts and, like, essential I don't know. Like colloquial things would get lost within that translation. Yes, do you... I do. Okay, so let's like that's the conversation that I wanted to kind of go in. Yeah, I okay. I do
1: think that um mm-hmm. you will lose some things, but I think you already lose something. I don't want to trivialize that, right? Right. But you also you already lose something from like the author's original intention because we're all readers are also a text, right? They're also bringing right. their thing right. to it, right? right. So maybe the author intended to communicate a very specific thing about their cultural context, right? But for the reader who doesn't have that context, they're going to bring their own thing to it and it doesn't take away from their ability to enjoy it. And Mm. I think if we get too um, balkanized... Um, then, people who, um, then people will feel like, oh, well, then I'm appropriating reading. Like, no, the whole point <laughs> is, stories are supposed to be, you know, global. Yeah. Like, I, I, re- I read stories that had nothing to do with my context, yeah. a lot of times not by choice, yeah. in terms of just because of the way, um, you know, the, the world is set up and publishing yeah. is set up. I, but I loved, you know, the Sweet Valley High books. Yes, yeah, you know, I, Nancy, what is Drew, it, Nancy Drew. I loved that, I mean, it, it spoke to other things about me you know like Mm -hmm. I was a a girl that was ambitious and Mm -hmm. curious you know what I mean so I don't want to lose that and I think that it's important that the world connects in those ways you know listening and hearing and reading other stories I went through like I guess when the publishing industry went through its phase I went through like a big like Indian writers phase and I loved those books and those books were bridges for me you know in terms of like understanding like Mm-hmm. wow, a lot of there are a lot of similarities to our cultures, um, you know, in Ghana Indi- and Indi- in India. India. Um, and then just the similarities of the immigrant experience, you know. So I, I, I think it's super important um, that, you know, we allow, we free stories so that, that people in all different parts of the world can get access to them, can read them, and then, you know, interact with the world in that way.
0: Yeah. And I think, like you were saying, like, it just, allows you to have a new understanding of like what it means to actually be a part of this world and not think that you're isolated on an island because i do think that they're you know like it's very easy to get stuck in that mindset especially when you live in western societies that like the only like everything that is good and everything that is popular and everything that is relevant is here and you don't need to search outside of that but sometimes even just allowing your mind to go there and visit and see you know whether it's traveling physically or through a book You know, and then I wanted to know, how many books do you read on average? I feel like there's always that theory that, like, writers read the most. Yeah, you know what is so funny for about, um,
1: so my second book just got acquired. So it's been seven years and two months from when I wrote the first draft. I will never forget because as I was writing, like, the last paragraph of this book, Whitney Houston died. Like I, or the news of Whitney Houston's death was on. So I remember that so like viscerally and it took so long and, uh, through the process over the years of like the rejections and the revisions and the rejections, I became really embittered <laughs> about like writing and reading. And so I would, it, I didn't really read a lot during that time.
0: And um, like over the course of seven years, or just yeah, like, I mean within, I read, but, but not... like
1: not reading was drained of its pleasure for me because mm, I would you reminded you, I would be hate reading. Like I'd be reading like, <laughs> how the hell did this book get published? And I'm still struggling to get my book published. Like totally like bitter and jealous. <laughs> And then, right. um, and then there was the other side of it, like, I need to, like, make my book better and write. So mm-hmm. I was like, I don't have time to read. And so probably last year, um, I had a breakthrough with reading, and I just started reading for pleasure again. Mm-hmm. I just started loving reading again and appreciating writers because, like, as we're talking about, like, these writers are, like, you know, have their whole country on their back, their whole culture on their back, whatever they're trying to say— and they're, they're presenting that to the world. They're filtering that those experiences with so much vulnerability and truth and care to the world. And that's so important. And it's hard work. Right. So um, last year, because I, I do a lot of, I know this is bad, um, but I do a lot of writing and um, reading on my Kindle.
0: Oh, interesting. And I was going to ask you, are you
1: like a digital, you know? I mean, I do read, I, I, I have a lot of books and actually there my apartment is like, my book's shelf is swelling with books and so i started buying more digital books because i just don't have the room yeah but anyway last year i read like between october and like january i read 28 books (gasps) and these were big meaty books catching up for the time loss exactly (laughs) and that was not that was just kindle not not counting like the the print books that i read so I do, I've been reading a lot lately and I, it makes me so happy because like I said, it it's rekindled my love and like of reading and my respect for writers, mm,
0: you know? No, that's so true. And like, it's funny because I feel like there is that theory, but then at the same time, like you said, you go through lapses because like not every chef wants to cook at home, you know? Yes, yes, not- <laughs> yes. and
1: I And I've talked to other writers
0: about yeah. this and it's
1: sort of like a secret like you know i think i think a lot of writers read less than um they say for for similar reasons and also you know like because they're getting their work done or because they're just feeling like frustrated um by you know like the business of it and it drains that that love of it out um but i also know that um there's also the, the the real fact of like attention span like, ev- like our the average attention span has gone from twelve seconds to eight seconds, and it's shrinking all the even more with like just technology right. and like you know Instagram life where you're just used to like zoning out and zombieing out like you know just scrolling scrolling mm-hmm. scrolling and, and endless like it exactly. doesn't stop you at some point exactly. like are you sure you want to continue and, and and it doesn't require as much concentration as maybe like writing does mm. um, or sorry excuse me reading does so that's also impacting because I know I spoke to one um you know editor at like a you know a party setting like just a casual yeah. setting and she was telling me that you know oh it's so hard you know reading and I was like you're an editor and you're saying yeah. you're like acquiring books <laughs> right so, um, but that's a that's a reality so it puts more pressure on us as writers to write really compelling work because it's like only the really, really good stuff keeps your attention. Right. (laughs) I mean, because it's just the way of the world now. It's really
0: important, so. But I do think that there is a sense of, you know, when you attach the visual not to say that every book should become a picture book but like now i feel like because of like podcasts and like hearing your favorite authors or different authors just go on different types of shows like and then you get to understand their stories and like who they are i feel like i also get intrigued by that way too and then want to dive into book to their book and i know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover but it's like that idea of like okay i'm seeing the author you know she looks like me She's kind of writing stories that I would like. I'm going to now find out about the books, you know? So I feel like it's kind of put in the reverse, whereas, like, before you would go to the bookstore and, like, find a book and, like, oh, then you'd see the author and be like, oh, wow, you know, this is who they are and, like, kind of delve down that path. But now it's flipped. And I kind of like that it's flipped.
1: Yeah, I I don't mind that at all. Mm -hmm. I think that... um, you know, we all relate to content so differently now. Right. You know what I mean, because we know too much. You know, <laughs> you can just hit Google and like get to know like right. everything like, this about is, she's this married, person. Have three kids. Exactly, divorce. Right. You know, this is what they believe, who they voted for, oh, right. what they think. You know, all these kinds. Of, exactly. Yes. So there's so many things that so much more knowledge that we have of like artists and the people that like create the work that, you know, we enjoy. So, (laughs) I mean, it is what it is and you know, that's a conversation for another day, (laughs) but I, but I think that it's good. I think that, Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of goes also to, um, the business of, of writing as well, because being aware of the fact that people consume, um, like your work in all of these different ways, like thinking about how your work reads when it's read aloud, because mm. there if there's an audio book that's coming out of it or Thinking about, um, like I know a lot of authors are now doing book trailers, mm-hmm. you know, like the way you would do for a film because they want to create a visual that sparks people's imagination. Then there's like some books are like enhanced with like augmented reality and um, virtual reality. Interesting. And I think that's really interesting, too, because especially for people... Like me, who are writing in a context that maybe someone in the West doesn't understand, for them to be able to kind of point their phone at a sentence and hear the song that you know right. uh, the character is the listening setting. to, mm-hmm. or see something that you know, or or hear people watch people pound fufu, mm-hmm. you know things like that that can really like bring you into the experience. I know that um, you know it it is a shame that like you know purists might feel that it's you know it's a shame that you lose the imagination quotient. But um but there's also um an opportunity to expand, you know, people's kind of like worldview um by giving them, you know, attaching a visual to it. So I'm definitely interested in, in like just kind of exploring and experimenting with the ways that stories are even told mm-hmm. um and transmitted. And as writers, like how can we like how can we do that to to make the story feel fresh right because sometimes when you go to um i'm a writer i love reading i love you know writers i love hearing new work but when you go to a bookstore sometimes and it's like just a person standing behind a stage reading it can get boring to even me (laughs) you know what i mean so how (laughs) much more yeah exactly so i mean how can we freshen up freshen that up um Mm -hmm. You know, or even maybe it's maybe it's not even freshening it up, you know, but just kind of thinking through all of that Mm -hmm. and understanding that we are in a world where people's attention spans are so much lower. There's so many different kinds of texts, digital, you know, visual, uh, you know, words. There's so many different things going on. Like, how do we. How do we account for that and think about that and um, evolve the story? Because people will always want stories. That's the beauty of it. That's That's what informs longevity because at the end of the day, no matter what trends are going on, what has never changed is that people always want a story that will help them to better understand themselves and the world around them. And that story comes in different ways. You know, whether they're, you know, painting on a prehistoric you know cave um wall or they're writing it down but people want to um people are always trying to figure out what the purpose of life the meaning of life is and the meaning of their lives is through story and so it's a powerful um opportunity and gift that we have as storytellers and you know we shouldn't be afraid to um you know help evolve that and explore ways to to make it compelling in the next you know generation
0: that is such a great point that you've brought up and again like addressing like how even within one continent, there are so many variables and there's different just definitions of what it even means because of these borders, you Absolutely. know, that are man made but still like define us in so many different ways. And Absolutely. I think that it is, as you've said, so important for us to, for everyone to understand those stories, not just a certain subgroup. But I would also want to know too, like, do you feel like even within the subgroup that is a uh, able to have access to all of these different stories do you feel like there is now a growing yearning for those stories or do you think now where there's a because I've had this conversation with friends where it's just like you know there is A story that they love and like you know they'll get access to and they'll read and like whether it's coming from like the artists that are the writers that we already know or if they're those are being turned into movies but there isn't really you know the ask for like oh what is happening in angola or what is so i just want to know in your perspective and in your world do you see that there is a growing number of people who are asking for those stories
1: I yes, mm-hmm. yes, I think it's I think especially now that um, African literature is exploding, I think that mm. publishers are just like, "Whoa, oh my goodness," and I <laughs> tap into it. Yes, and I think yeah. they they feel ill-equipped because they mm. haven't, you know, had their eyes trained. They don't even know where to begin. Right. And so um I think that there is definitely an interest like, "Yeah, what is going on in Angola?" What and 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 just in general, um because the world is has become so globalized, there's interest in like what's for for the first time, Americans are much more interested in what's happening outside of America Country. than they ever have been. Um, immigration has also kind of you know forced mm-hmm. us to realize like we're not an island. You know we're we're part <laughs> of this world, and we as much as you know they have these kind of um, we're instituting these exclusionary um, laws on immigration. Mm-hmm. It, you, you I mean a wall is not going
0: to keep you know, is not going to stop the world from being the world. (laughs) Completely. You know, so. There will be and will always be continuing of intermixing. And I think that's that's the beauty of what makes the world the world, you know, that we're able to find our similarities, but then also have our distinct differences and appreciate those differences. And learn from them. I mean,
1: that's one of the things that I love about traveling is that you think that, things can only be done a certain way. And then you go somewhere else and they have the same, you know, tools or the same ingredients and they like reinvent it or they're using it in a completely different way. Completely. So it's, it's inspiring to me. I think about that a lot. Like just... I've become, like, such a, you know, textile junkie. Mm-hmm. And, Which um, we're going to get into. I've become such a textile junkie. And it's like, you'll see, like, people have the same, like, cotton, the same, you know, yarns or, or access to the same kind of textiles. But then the ways that they, you know, Use what it. they make of it is just completely different. Or even with cooking, it's like... Okay, we all have avocados and we all have like
0: pom- toast. <laughs> exactly. But like
1: everyone is like each culture like it makes it
0: what it's it is for their own and context to and to just the stews oh and the gosh, salads yes. and the you know there's again a plethora yes. of and I'm so glad that you said the different styles and innovations because if you, fam if you could see the outfit that she is wearing right now it is a beautiful beautiful textile which I am sure is Exit 14, your fashion line. Tell us more about that. Yes, Um, so um, Mm -hmm. my sister,
1: my mom and I, about two years ago, Mm -hmm. officially started um, a line called Exit 14. And it's made in Ghana um, Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. Ghanaian artisans Mm -hmm. using traditional Ghanaian textiles. Mm -hmm. Um, our signature right now is Batakari. The outfit I'm wearing is actually not Batakari. It's a tie-dye. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, we, yes. we we primarily use a, um, a, a fabric called Batakari, which is um, a hand-woven um, cotton um, that is loomed in this really amazing way, um, which traps um, the heat, your body heat, mm-hmm. but it repels like... Um, you know savannah force winds because it's it's native to the northern part of ghana which has a little bit more of
0: like a desert like climate i see so. and i went to a trunk show recently and was able to see all of the different styles fam all of her um, information is going to be in the description box so if you want to see the beautiful colors and just styles what does it mean to you to be able to through Yes, you're storytelling. You're also telling another story through fashion. Like how are the two similar but also different? Well, I think one of the things about
1: fashion is that um, you don't have to open your mouth. People just see you. <laughs> and yes. I, growing up in, in New York, primarily, I was yeah. um, really ashamed of being from Ghana. You know, growing up yeah. in the 80s, people were not as woke as they are now. There was no, no, no Black Panther, <laughs> no, no, and people were, you know, calling me African booty scratcher, and Talk about you it. know, it was, it was a, it was something that was like embarrassing and like, mm-hmm. you know, you were, we were shamed about it, so. Um, I did everything that I could to suppress my my African identity for a really long time. And when I went to Ghana for high school at age 12, that was the beginning of me seeing like, wow, this is a completely different um, Africa or Ghana than I I've been told you know based on like the news or based on just like the ways people treated us and it was begin becoming a source of pride to me and as that grew I wanted to show that off I'm like what our clothes are fabulous like look right. at this like I'm wearing custom made things and right. it didn't have to come from Italy or France like this is my culture and my context and you know just all I just started really developing an appreciation for the artistry where i'm from so i wanted to broadcast that and um it's something that i don't have to open my mouth when people see me they know mm-hmm. you know that i'm from somewhere else and i'm proud of it and then that be- can begin a dialogue like i have started wearing um I-, I often wear my hair um in a traditional um, Ghanaian style using thread beautiful and thank you Fam. thank you
0: if you could just see i need to have a video element <laughs> attached to AfroLit now because the way that my guests come they're you know just out they're making me work harder <laughs> i need to dress prepared for these interviews <laughs> or conversations <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, and I love it because people see me on the street and they like stop to ask me questions and then it becomes an opening to say, well, it's a traditional Ghanaian text, you know, right. a traditional Ghanaian style. Yes, And I can go into the story and that becomes a bridge to sort of explaining my culture,
0: broadcasting it and yeah. being proud of it. Mm-hmm. And do you, and I think it's so interesting that you brought up the idea of, you know, custom made immediately has to be linked to Europe or, you know, artisans and, you know, specifically in like luxury, you know, like has now working on Exit 14, has it changed what you think about luxury and what you think about just like fashion and the way that, you know, it's affecting climate change and things of that nature? Do you take all of that into consideration? Absolutely. So one of the things, um, that,
1: um, we are sort of committed to is, again, like showcasing the artistry of um, these Ghanaian artisans with the fabric because these are traditional, um, the the way the fabric is loomed is loomed in a traditional way that has been um, going on for centuries. Even with this, my hairstyle, it's also been going on for like centuries. And it's something that if we don't keep it up, it's gonna die out um mm. so it's really important because even with when i come to the states and i look for people to do the hair it's hard to find, even in Ghana, it's hard really? to find people who know how to do it because it's an old style. And so I love the fact that, you know, in, that, in my, like when I go to the hairdresser, my the woman who does my hair now, she's like, oh, yeah, I remember doing this like as a kid. <laughs> and so, you know, she's she's reacquainting herself with that knowledge. And I yeah. love that because it's it's a way to keep it going. Mm. Similarly with the batakari and just all of like the the traditional textiles and the mm-hmm. traditional ways in which they're made it's a it's a it's you know Mm -hmm. uh, it's a way to keep that going but in terms of your question about luxury absolutely because you know luxury when we talk about luxury it's about um the craftsmanship it's about like the artistry it's about the 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 skill that um it takes to put these things together and the artisans who make batakari they apprentice for three years to learn how to make it yes and you're not it's each is each bolt of batakari is essentially one of a kind because it's not it's you you they're not going to be able to replicate it exactly because it's not factory produced it's Mm -hmm. not machine made it's all a manual process it takes two weeks to make one bolt of batakari if that's not luxury i don't know what is exactly you you know
0: yeah and i think you know it's also i think what you're doing is changing a mindset You know, I think that a lot of what we think about, especially when it comes to whether it's African storytelling or fashion or things that are, you know, typically associated with being African, that sense of pride was stripped from us, right? So now that we're able to like reinfuse that into our identity and be proud of it, I think speaks so many volumes so you know, with Exit 14 and it being considered, like, a luxury brand, like, do you want to take it to the heights of being included in, like, the conversations of luxury, or are you okay? Because I know that there's, you know, now the conversation of, like, appropriation and, like, people being very afraid of, like, okay, What if uh, conglomerate wants to come in and, like, you know, acquire me Mm -hmm. as a fashion brand? You know, is that me selling out? You know, what if I want to do it? You know, so how do you navigate those sorts of conversations? You know, and what do you say to people who think that, oh, yeah, no, she's selling out because now she's being sold at Saks Fifth Avenue and whatnot, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that when it comes to appropriation, mm-hmm. I I resist the sort of hyper, like, you know, policing of what people can wear. To me, appropriation is when you take something that someone else has created or another culture has um, created, and right. then you, you know, wear it, and then you don't... Um, or you adopt it and then you don't give credit to where it came from because that's right. plagiarism right. appropriation is essentially plagiarism right mm-hmm. but if you um give credit because we're all wearing something that someone made from some something else or um, was inspired by something else we're all we're not living in a vacuum even if you've never left the country that you come from. You've been in some way influenced by some entity that is foreign to you, right? You know, from, you know, the the, the food that you eat that may have been imported to, you know, the clothing that you wear that may have been made by someone who right. is in a factory in China. I mean, we're all kind of li- woven together in this world in a way that can be explicit mm-hmm. or in a way that's implicit. Right. And so to me, it's more about just kind of acknowledging that so what I what we try to do with Exit 14 and what I try to do with my writing is give people um that access to that education, right? So they know. So like when you if you're a person um who of European descent yeah. or an American that wears a, a, our garment just so you know so you know like when someone compliments you, you say yes it's from Ghana. Mm, right? it's batakari, batakari and you know and we educate <laughs> you, you. exactly yes. exactly so so that's that's really what i think is the most important thing and as far as selling out i mean every business model is different so yeah. i don't i mean i we haven't we're not there yet at all we just started um, but it's very important to us to um we're not trying to be Walmart. We're not trying to be H and M. You know, we're we're just we're really trying to. The, one of the reasons why it's important to us to stay, we want to be niche mm. because we want to uh, maintain the integrity of, you know, what this brand like is. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's people, human beings who are artisans make crafting these pieces, and they're special. And so we're not mm. trying to like mass market produce anything. But we do want people to recognize that it's a luxury garment, and um if it makes sense down the line, like what rihanna's doing mm-hmm. um, you know brand, par- you know partnering with a big luxury um conglomerate, not for them to validate us um, right. but to you know I don't know you know, i mean it would have to we would have to figure out what what made sense, mm-hmm. but right now that's not the goal
0: mm-hmm. no, and I think it's beautiful that you're able to do both, you know, I think that you're educating, but then you're also inspiring, you know, others. I think that even through, yes, you know, your writing and your works and like the things that you've done, and the accolades that she has, but I think too now with this added component of being able to really just showcase and add, cause we are visual creatures, you know, we are attracted to colors and we're attracted to styles and like seeing that on you, makes such a huge, huge impact. And so I'm really, really excited to see what more you're doing. And actually, I wanted to get you to just think back to when you were 15, 10 years old. What would you say to Nana? Wow. Looking back. (laughs) I'd say, wow.
1: (laughs) I I think um, it's funny because um, when I was younger, I, I, it seems weird to say, but um, weird just because I I don't know if it feels, sounds boastful, but I'm like, wow, like you're living the dream that you wanted to, to live. You know, when I was a kid, um, I remember, you know, reading um, people's books and being like, "I want to do this." And yeah. you know, even with the with the fashion line, that just kind of took us by surprise. It kind of came out of nowhere. Really? You know, we were doing it for ourselves. Yeah. And, You know, just like the interest um, caused okay. us to to start um, to start a company. So it became um, it just became something like, "Wow, I've always loved fashion, but to have a company um, is is even." beyond my dreams, so I'm, I'm grateful.
0: Right, no, and I think that, again, like she, you would be super proud to just know that from, you know, Plattsburgh, New York, to Accra, to now back in New York City, doing amazing amazing things and what's one thing you would also tell to and you know an up-and-coming writer or even you know designer or writer turned designer as you consider yourself too you know what would you tell them advice you would give three pieces of advice you would give them before they venture into this i
1: would say um
0: I think you have to do your research. Um,
1: okay. With writing, I think um, what, a lot of what I did as a kid was just like go into the like the how to section. <laughs> yeah. I read a lot. I remember one book that stands out to me was a book called How to Write Irresistible Query Letters. The author was Lisa Collier-Cool, and, okay. I, and I, I got work based on following that. and And I look at that yeah and I just read a lot of those kind of how to like how to do this and you know how to look for an agent I did a lot of that as a kid and that was really helpful to me um so I would say just do the research and also be business-minded because I think that there is um a tendency for artists to feel like oh you know I don't need to care about that or think about that I need to focus on the work mm-hmm. and it is important obviously to prioritize the work right. but it's really also important to um to make sure that you understand the business and how it works um so I would say that and then I would just say also don't give up um mm. it's been and I know that's such a trite thing everyone says right. that but it's real it's real because I mean I'm 41 years old and Young, like font well, size. <laughs> I mean yes font size. I mean I don't I and I'm proud of it because mm-hmm. I know I've been through a lot and but I just remember um you know wanting everything so quickly when I was younger like what's taking so long you know and now that I look back I'm like just take your time take your time and just don't give up because that's what it's been about it's like the longevity at at the end of the day wins because you know some people kind of say they're going to do something and then they get um, taken out of the game by their own feelings of impatience, mm. or you know what have you. But just be patient, keep going,
0: keep at it. You get better over time, you know. So, so wow, thank you, thank you. That was speaking to me. Thank you. Know, you. That <laughs> I I needed those three pieces of advice, not just. <laughs> the rest of the AfroLit fam. But yes, where can we find you? You can find me at Mm nanabrewhammond.com
1: brewhammond without the hyphen. Mm -hmm. And um, you can also find our work at exit14apparel.com and then you can find me on Amazon or in the bookstore. Yes. Yes. My first book is called Powder Necklace. Um, I have a few short stories in different anthologies. One in New Daughters of Africa, one in Everyday People, one in Africa 39, one in girl,
0: and many others. So just go on Amazon and look for me. Just type her name in on Amazon and just order now everything. Yes, please. Absolutely. <laughs> order now. Thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of Afrolet. Stay tuned for more.